We've been looking at First uh, John recently, we're going to continue in that this morning. I'm just going to ask you if you've got your Bibles, just to turn to First John chapter 2, and I'll begin reading from verse 28. So that's the first letter of John chapter 2, and reading from verse 28. And we read, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears... We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, Now we are called children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear friends, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for all that we know that you want to bring to us from your word. We thank you that your desire is to lead each one of us more and more into that likeness of Jesus. Father, you have the power. You have the desire to do that. Lord, may we have the open and yielded, submissive hearts that will enable that to happen more and more in our experience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think you'd have to be particularly perceptive to realize that in recent weeks, The the drum that I suppose I've been banging is that doctrine, teaching, matters. And I've done this not just because this is a hobby horse of mine, though I confess it is, but because much more importantly, I believe that in stressing this, I'm reflecting the biblical balance, the biblical emphasis. And that without question what I'm doing is I'm reflecting the balance that we find here in First John, for John undoubtedly believed that doctrine matters. But if in recent weeks our theme has been that doctrine matters, well now the emphasis <coughs> shifts slightly to focus on a theme that again has been brought to our attention on a number of occasions over recent weeks and months. A theme that certainly is a major biblical theme and that here in his letter John now brings right slap bang centre stage. Stressing here that holiness matters. 
that if doctrine matters, then holiness matters not one bit less. But I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that this view, John's view, that the Bible's view, isn't one that's commonly held today. Either in the world out there around us, or tragically, even in the church. We don't take holiness seriously today in the way that we should. We don't see holiness as important as we should do. But incidentally, just for our, our purposes now, holiness to be understood as the moral lifestyle outworking in our lives of the life of the Holy Spirit within us. This being something that should be seen practically, to coin an old phrase, in two distinct ways, in separation and in consecration. So you see then when we're really living in the Spirit, when we are being led by the Spirit as we should be into holiness, then that will show itself in our lives, in a desire as far as we are able, living with Jesus Christ as Lord, to live lives that are separate from sin. And that will also show itself in our lives in consecration. That is in a commitment to live and to serve both God and man, day by day, joyously, lovingly, sacrificially. So forget any idea of holiness being some kind of cold and clinical, something that's an essentially private affair. No, real holiness, true holiness, as God intends, will always result in committed, devoted, and loving service. But as I've said, holiness isn't something that, that rates that high either in the world around or, or even in the church. And feelings about holiness seem to, to range between outright disinterest to a sense of unworthiness and even to outright fear. For some people feel that holiness is by definition otherworldly and therefore that in our materialistic society it's then viewed as irrelevant. Others feel that holiness is boring, that it takes the fun, that it takes the spice out of life. Yet others feel that real holiness is actually only just for God's chosen few, for the spiritual elite, if you like, and certainly not for little old ordinary me, which, in fact, by the way, is totally contradictory to the Bible's teaching because the Bible teaches that holiness is for all of God's people. But, you know, here I, I do sometimes wonder if the real motivation for, for this kind of reaction isn't really humility, either false or misunderstood, but rather actually it's apathy. We don't want the bother of being holy. We're just not all that interested in being holy. But saying that I'm not worthy to be holy, that sounds much better and much more spiritual. But I'm not actually all that bothered about being holy. But there are people, though, also, who are afraid of holiness. They're afraid of the, the difference, afraid of the, the changes that this might mean in their lives. They're afraid of, of what God might do with them, how he might use them, if they really, truly committed themselves to be holy instruments in the hands of a holy God. Now, what a misunderstanding. In fact, what a series of misunderstanding. Because true holiness 
doesn't actually take away from life. True holiness doesn't leave us the poorer. For while it can be costly, and we wouldn't deny that, yet true holiness brings joy and blessing, brings life's deepest fulfillment. I mean, think about it this way. Seeking to be holy equates to striving to grow in godliness. We see, as we were originally created in God's image, then what can seeking to see that image restored in us, to grow in the likeness of that image, what can that result in other than the blessing and the greatest joy that can come in this life, that joy of pleasing God as we live now, as we're intended to do? In fact, you know, the truth is that it's those who don't seek holiness who lose out. They lose out on true happiness, true satisfaction, unreal fulfillment. And as for a a fear of holiness because of what God might then do with you, well, I would say to you, that's an emotion that's for those who are outside of a real holy relationship with the Lord. Because once by holiness, in holiness, we've reached that real intimacy of relationship with God, then we will not be afraid of what our Father will do with us. For he is our Father. And we know that he loves us. And while this doesn't mean that life will always be easy for us, how can it ever be that in a broken, sinful world? Yet, we know that our Father is at work in every situation that we go through, every experience that we pass through. He is at work to make us more like Jesus, to make us more and more holy, which is what that ultimately means. He's at work always to bless us in that ultimate way. But people today, though, do often attempt to disguise the the lack of concern for holiness by all sorts of excuses that they dress up as arguments. For example, the non-Christian who says, our bodily appetites, these are natural. And we shouldn't suppress them because of an outdated concept like holiness, because that can only lead to a variety of negative consequences in our lives. Or the Christian who says, okay, I know that holiness is a, a biblical theme, But surely it was more prominent in the Old Testament than the New. And surely Jesus took things on. Jesus developed things because he was more concerned about love than holiness. So then, as long as we're loving, well, our little moral idiosyncrasies, faults and failings, they don't really matter anymore, do they? They don't matter. I would say nonsense to all of that. Because the problems in our society today are not caused by the suppression of our physical appetites, but rather by the fact that these are being allowed today to run wild. And anyway, real holiness, true holiness, biblical holiness doesn't demand that we suppress these appetites, but rather that we face up to them, that we deal with them and then channel them properly, channel them appropriately, making sure that we are the masters of them. 
that in Christ we are in control rather than vice versa. And as for that concern or that idea that holiness was you know, majorly the, the concern of the Old Testament and love is that of the New, again, I want to say, just repeat it, nonsense. Nonsense. I mean, undoubtedly, Jesus taught and lived a new dimension of love. Undoubtedly, he gave love a new emphasis and priority, but not at the cost of holiness. Not that. No, rather in the teaching and the person and example of Jesus Christ, holiness and love stand side by side. And anyone who tries to teach otherwise by inserting some kind of unbiblical dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually teaching that which is a denial of the unchanging nature of the God who wrote both Old and New Testament. In John's day, though, in John's day, these false Gnostic teachers that he faced, well, they were actually much more blatant in their rejection of holiness. For as we've seen in previous weeks, they taught a very clear, not at all biblical, but a very clear distinction between the human Jesus and the divine indwelling spirit, Christ. So you see, for them, all Jesus was, was an ordinary man who had a very special experience of the spirit, Christ. And they then went on from that to say, that if you come to us, if you listen to us, if you follow us, then you can have a similar experience of God. We can help you to that. You too can be just like Jesus. Now this teaching is of course heretical and has all sorts of, of negative consequences. But the main one that, that concerns us today is that this false division between body and spirit that this led them to say that the body is evil anyway. The flesh is evil. Only the inner spirit is good. So then they went on, what you then do with your body doesn't really matter. In fact, they said, the truly mature Christian can sin all that they want. And they won't do themselves one bit of spiritual harm. So for them then, holiness didn't matter. And John's argument here, his reaction, is to argue that holiness certainly does matter. That it matters a lot. And here he gives three biblical reasons why holiness matters. Three reasons that are as valid today as they were then. So first then, Holiness matters because of who we are. The children of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Now, what a mind-blowing thought. That we who know Jesus Christ are in a special way the children of God. But you ever thought about what that actually means, of the implications and consequences of that? Well, here, I believe John just cracks open the door of heaven just a little bit for us 
And the way he begins to do this is as he has before by parodying the teaching of these false teachers and then using it to poke fun at them and to point to the truth. For you see, they said that they had had an experience of God. That they'd had a perfect vision of God without holiness, not bothering with holiness, that somehow led them and placed them on a higher spiritual plane. John's reply is that we can have a true vision of God, which is given to the children of God, but never a perfect vision, not in this sinful world, not this side of heaven, but rather that in this, as in many other areas of the Christian life, there is a now and a not yet dimension to the Christian's vision. For now, on this earth, we can see and know him truly. We can know him truly. But not yet, not till we get to heaven, will we see him and know him perfectly. With this tying in with and being true in exactly the same way of our status as children of God. See what it says in verse 2. It says, dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. You get that? Now, but not yet. Now we are truly God's children. But then John goes on from this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And see what John's saying here. How he's trying to bring all this together. Our our vision of God, our, our holiness, the now and the not yet, how he's bringing it together. That at the second coming of Jesus, when he appears, when we then look into the face of God at that time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we see him then, God himself, verse 2, as he is, then we shall be like him. That is the ultimate destiny of the children of God. That is what our not yet will one day be, to be like him. But in what way, though, do you think we are going to be like him? Have you ever thought about that? In what way in heaven, as the children of God, are we going to be like the Son of God? For instance, do you think this means that we're going to be physically like him? In heaven, that heaven's going to be populated by innumerable clones of Jesus. Or do you think maybe that this means that all our individual traits of character and personality, that all of these are going to be obliterated once we get to heaven? I want to say I don't think so. For I believe the Bible tells us that God treasures our individuality. That God made us the way we are and that we are precious to him the way we are in our distinctiveness and with all our differences. Rather than what I believe this means when it says we shall be like him, is that finally, in heaven, the spiritual and moral likeness of Jesus is then going to be reproduced in us. We are going to be like him, like him at last, in his sinlessness. And in his perfect holiness. But then you see, and this is so important, then John goes on 
to talk about the implications of this right now for the here and now. Verse 2 and 3. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Now, what, what John's saying here is that if this is what we now are, children of God, and if this is what we one day are going to be, perfected children of God in Jesus Christ, and if even now God sees us as perfect as he sees us clothed in him, well, in the light of this, in the light of what God has done for us, what we now are in him, in the light of what we one day will be in him, surely, in the light of all of this, we will be striving towards holiness in the here and now. We will want to live in holiness in the here and now as an effort to please the one who has given us everything in him. That's what it says. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. And if we don't do so, if we ignore holiness, if we relegate holiness to a place of secondary importance in our priorities in our life, then we're told that one day we're going to reap the consequences of this. For verse 28 of chapter 2, we're told there to continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. But the obvious inference of this being that if we don't continue in him, if we don't continue to strive more and more in holiness towards his likeness, if we don't, then on that greatest day in all of human history, on that day when he returns, on that day that should be a day of unspeakable joy for all believers, on that day, instead of looking him in the eye, our tendency will be to hang our head in shame because we will know that we failed the one who gave everything for us. So holiness matters because of who we are. Holiness also matters because of what sin is. And verse 4 here tells us just what sin is. It says that everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And that is the essence of sin. That's what sin essentially is all about, lawlessness. For sin is man in his pride rejecting God's authority, rejecting God's laws, and saying that he will be his own authority, that he will live by his own laws, his own standards, his own values, that he, we, will be as God in our own life. That was the, the substance of the original temptation in Eden in Genesis 3, verse 5. Satan said that God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are two things, though, that arise in this that I think it's important that we focus on. 
That is, first of all, people often have the idea, either consciously or, or subconsciously, that, that, okay, then if sin is rejecting God's authority, then what that must mean is that when I sin, I'm really free. I might be upsetting God, okay, but I then am really free because I'm doing what I like. I'm making my choices. That's not the way the Bible actually sees it. For notice what it says here in verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So you see, what the Bible says then, how it portrays our situation, is that in this world, we stand right in the middle of a spiritual war. And both God and the devil are continually fighting for our allegiance. And as we choose to sin, we allow, allay ourselves, ally ourselves with the sinful one. We, by our sin, put ourselves in his camp. And, and even more than that, once we, by choice, have opened our lives to sin, then the devil builds his strongholds or rebuilds his strongholds in our lives. He takes control. And so then we sin no longer by choice, but we sin by necessity. We are driven to sin. With this whole process being started off by Adam and Eve, by the first human beings, for they chose to sin. And as they chose to sin, they corrupted an originally morally pure human nature. And we then inherited that nature from them. And so we are now sinners because of that inherited nature and also because of our personal choice, which leads to the slavery to sin that everyone is now held in by Satan. And then as verse 8 makes clear, it was in order to break this grip of sin and Satan that Jesus came. He came to pay the price of sin demanded by a holy God. He came to destroy the stronghold of sin that Satan has erected in our hearts. As it says in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The other point that I want to underline here is in, in the light of all of this, how can those of us who are Christians uncaringly and unthinkingly choose to continue in sin. And by doing that, ally ourselves once more with Satan. Because think about this, just think of this. As Christians, we know that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And they are. That as they're brought to God in confession and repentance, so they are covered by the blood, by the death, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's true. And it's the most wonderful thing on this earth. But take this on. Just think of this a little bit more. Jesus died on that cross for the sins of all mankind through all eternity. But you see, that includes not only the sin that you committed before you became a Christian, but also that sin that you committed since you became a Christian. So you see, the sin I commit today was the sin that put Jesus on the cross. 
The sin that I commit today are in part the reason why those nails were hammered into his hands and his feet. And all forgiven, yes they are, all forgiven. But sin nevertheless. Sin that put Jesus on the cross. So can I then, as a Christian, sin uncaringly and unthinkingly? Can I do that? Rightly, can I do that? Surely, no right-thinking Christian can do that easily. So again, holiness matters because of what sin is. Finally and briefly, holiness also matters because of what God has done. And what has God done? Well, let's just center here on the very special thing, particular thing we're told here in these verses that God has done. Verse 9, it says, God has planted his seed in us. God has planted his seed in us. And you see, what this means is that God in his amazing grace, as we've come to Christ, has placed his life in our hearts. But as we've come to Christ, he has recreated us within. And he's given us a new life, a new nature that desires him and that seeks after him. And more than that even, he has placed his own life in the person of the Holy Spirit within us. And this is one Inevitable consequence. Again, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's sin remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So the consequence then of being born of God, the consequence, as it says here, of, of being born of God's seed, is that we cannot go on sinning. Because God's life, God's holy nature at work within us just will not allow that. But what do we mean though when we say here we cannot go on sinning? Well certainly it doesn't mean as some have taken it that it's possible for the Christian in this life to reach some stage of a kind of sinless perfection because the Bible makes it very clear that's not a possibility. As indeed does John himself in this very letter 1 John 1 verse 8 if we claim to be without sin, the truth is not in us, and we deceive ourselves. So no, what's actually intended here, I believe is actually made clear by the, the tense that John uses when he, he says those words, we cannot go on saying. Because what John is saying here is that once we have come to know Jesus, once his life is within us, then we cannot go on sinning. That is, we cannot go on living the kind of life that we once did. We cannot go on living that life where sin is the dominant characteristic. We cannot go on living that life of habitual sin because our recreated nature, that life of the Spirit within us, will not allow that. But here you might want to say to me, but what about the people I've known who've backslidden into a life of sin? Who I'm absolutely sure was Christians. What about those people? We find multiple examples of this in the Bible. For example, my own namesake, King David. 
what sins he committed. But I believe there is a vital difference between a genuine Christian who backslides again into sin and the false Christian who simply reverts into sin, just goes back to their old way of life. And the difference is, this vital difference is, that the genuine Christian will suffer agonies of conscience because of their sin. You see, the new nature within them, the presence of the Holy Spirit within them, will give them no peace. It will eat away at them. They will have no peace in their sin. Whereas the false Christian, well, they sin without a care in the world, even with relish. But you see, hear the implications of all of this. That holy living, not perfect holiness, never perfect holiness, we'll never know that, but striving to be holy. That continual seeking to grow in holiness. This is key to our sense of assurance as Christians. The assurance that we really are God's. Because holiness, a desire for holiness, a desire to know more of God and to live more for his glory is the stamp, is the seal of the ownership of God on our lives. As verse 10 says of chapter 3, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. But you know all this, it's not a word from God that's intended to leave you dejected. Now this is a word that's intended to encourage you to really look at your life and make sure that you're right with God. Make sure that you're living close to God and make sure again that you have a confidence in him that's based on a solid foundation. So again, holiness matters because of who we are, God's children. Holiness matters because of what sin is, lawlessness. And holiness matters because of what God has done, placed his life in his spirit in our hearts. Holiness matters. It matters to God. Let's make sure it matters to us. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, you know exactly where each one of us is in our lives just now. You know where we are in our walk with you. Maybe we're living that life where we're striving to be like you. We're seeking to grow in you and we're doing all the right things. And we rejoice for all that that's the case for. But Lord, there's others maybe here. And we know that we're, we're not walking close to you. We know that we've done things that, that do dishonor you. But Father, we thank you that there's always a way back to you. That if we are believers who have a love for you, no matter how far we've fallen, that you're ready to accept us as we repent as we face up to our sin, deal with it and turn back to you, you are ready to accept us with rejoicing. Father, as the father accepted the prodigal son, 
So you welcome back all who come to you in true repentance. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to know that we're loved by you. And help us to accept the forgiveness that you bring. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.